Uh, thank you all for coming to uh, listen this morning. Uh, I have heard some of what's been happening here at Central Prez in the last several years, and uh, very encouraging and exciting to see the Lord working here. So I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to be here to be able to see it up close and directly, uh, and uh, I'll pray the Lord's blessings on you as you continue to serve him here in the city. Uh, someone mentioned to me uh, uh, not long ago that uh, 20 years ago, uh, they could could tell you the name of every evangelical Christian in New York City, <laughs> uh, and it wasn't a long list. Um, that, as you as you know, has changed dramatically over the last couple of decades, and you're part of that. And it's very encouraging to see the Lord working in places like this that, uh, from the perspective of Birmingham, Alabama, look like unlikely places for the gospel to take hold. You're a long way from the Bible Belt. Um, before I talk about uh, Catholicity, which is my topic today, I do want to. Uh, say a little bit about the Theopolis Institute that Jason mentioned. Uh, we started work at Theopolis three and a half years ago. It's an educational ministry based in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, our main work has been to host a series of weekly, I guess you could call them sort of retreats. They're courses, but they ha- have kind of a retreat flavor to them. Uh, we have uh, three of these every year. Students come to Birmingham, and uh, there's teaching on various topics, uh, we every day is begun and ended with worship. Uh, we have uh, seminar discussions during the day, eat our meals together, uh, and it's a it's a uh, again like a, a little flavor, a little taste of monastic life for a week. Uh, and uh, uh, we've been we've been doing that for pastors, for aspiring pastors, lay people for the last three years, uh, and also intending to have a year long course starting in the fall to uh, to. Uh, do the same thing on a larger scale with uh, students that stay with us for at least an academic year. Um, so the kinds of courses we teach, we, we generally do a Bible course every year on a book of the Bible or some biblical theme. Uh, we have courses on worship and liturgy. Uh, we have a course on liturgical space and architecture coming up in, in March. We have a Christian architect coming in to talk about uh, how to design architectural space in a way that uh, church, church architecture in particular in a way that uh, honors God and is conducive to worship. Uh, we have a course coming up in May that is going to be on political economy for pastors, um, also for other Christians, not just for pastors, but trying to help Christians to think through uh, political and economic issues from uh, fresh, in fresh ways, uh, try to uh, get past some of the, um, the uh, partisanship and the the kind of uh, conflicted politics that's characterized America for the last several decades. So I uh, try to think creatively about how the Christian church can make specific Christian contributions to our politics. Uh, we do other kinds of things, but those are the, some of the main things we do. Uh, if you're interested at all, I know this is a very brief introduction to Theopolis, but if you're interested in keeping up with us, I have a clipboard with a sign-up sheet here. Uh, we put out a monthly e-newsletter. If you don't get enough email and you're wanting... <laughs> Uh, yet another monthly email to come into your inbox. Um, I, it has a column for uh, mailing address. I don't need that. All I need is your name and your email address, and we'll make sure you get into the system. Uh, the emails have an update on things we're doing, advertisements for upcoming uh, week, uh, retreat weeks, and also um, a couple of articles that are uh, posted from our, from our website. So if you're interested, sign up. I won't be offended if you're not. So, thank you. My topic today is Catholicity and culture, and 
Uh, I'm going to monologue for maybe 20 minutes or so, uh, and then I'll stop probably rather abruptly when I see my 20 minutes is up, uh, and uh, take questions if there are any uh, about what I've been talking about. What I want to do in the time that I'm monologuing is uh, define Catholicity, what do I mean by that, and explain why this is an important feature of Christian faith. Uh, then I want to talk a little bit about the uh, cultural, political effects of uh, the failure of Catholicity that we see in the modern age, uh, the failure of the church to live out our confession that we are one uh, and Catholic as a Christian church. Uh, and then since is the, this is vocare, uh, we're talking about vocation. I want to say a few words about that. Um, I'm eager to hear from you. Uh, I think you have much more to tell me about how this might might apply in your own worlds than I can that I can tell you. So uh, before I begin, let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for this time we can spend together uh, speaking about your Word and your Church. Uh, we pray that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified in all that we say and do during this hour. Uh, we pray that uh, you would. Form us and mold us by your spirit to be your agents, your instruments uh, for extending the kingdom of Christ uh, and to realize his purposes in the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the uh, meaning of Catholicity. I, by the way, I, I really like the musical accompaniment back here. Again, adds some gravitas to what I'm saying. It's, just, you know, it's, not, it's not light pop music. It's an organ. So you've got to take this seriously. Um, it, it might be a little distracting, though. Uh, first of all, Catholicity. What do I mean by Catholicity? Uh, the uh, first and, I suppose, obvious negative thing to say is that when I say Catholicity, I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism. Uh, when I say that Christians should pursue Catholicity or that we confess that the church is Catholic, I'm not saying that the, the, the one true church is the church of which uh, the Bishop of Rome is the head, uh, or that the church is only the church in its fullness when it's associated with the Bishop of Rome. Um, Roman Catholics have kind of monopolized the term Catholicity, uh, and that's unfortunate because, as you know, the, the term Catholic appears in all of the early creeds of the church that Protestants continue to use, that Orthodox Christians in the East continue to use. Uh, that, that term is a universal term, uh, within the Catholic Church and not just used by Roman Catholics. So uh, I'm not, this is not a plea for you to convert to Roman Catholicism. It's not an, a defense of Roman Catholicism. Um, Catholicity means universal or universality. To say that the Church is Catholic is to say that the Church is a universal reality. And I think that's, it's helpful to break that down a bit because uh, that, can, that can sound pretty abstract break that down into several different components, several different aspects to Catholicity. What does it mean to say that the church is universal? Uh, there's a, a universality of the church, a Catholicity of the church in time. That is to say that it's the same church that stretches throughout the entire history of Christianity. And if you want to extend it, you could say it goes back all the way to the call of Abraham, or you can say it extends all the way back to Abel. It's one it's one body, it's one thing throughout that whole history. Um, to say we're Catholics means that we, uh, doesn't mean that we agree with everything that's been said and done in the course of that history. Uh, churches have made mistakes, churches have done bad things, Christians have done bad things. Uh, 
Christian t teachers have said things that are not true. So to say that we uh, embrace that entire inheritance is not to say that we agree with all of it, but we, we do acknowledge that the entire inheritance of the Christian church is ours. It's part of our history. It's part of our communal, a part of our family history. Uh, there's a tendency among some Protestants to think of the history of the church and kind of with kind of a, a large parenthesis in the middle of it. Uh, the early church is pretty good, really good with the apostles. As soon as the apostles are gone, it becomes pretty good. Uh, and then around somewhere around 500, uh, it becomes really bad. And for the next thousand years, think about that. That's a thousand years. That's a long time. For the next thousand years, it's really, really bad. And we really don't have a whole lot to learn from that history. And we really don't want to acknowledge that thousand-year period as part of our history. That's not what the Protestant reformers intended when they uh, protested and started a resistance to uh, the distortions of the gospel that existed within medieval Catholicism. Uh, they were doing it in, uh, in the name of the heritage that they, that they were, uh, the heritage of the church. They were saying that the Catholic church had departed from that heritage and especially in the late medieval period, they had all kinds of distortions had been introduced into the church. And they were, they were protesting against the current state of the church in the name of uh, this heritage that they had embraced. Uh, so that, that idea that there's this large thousand-year parenthesis within the church is wrong. Uh, that's un-Catholic. Uh, we say uh, the opposite every time we recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We're saying that we are Catholics and we say this, is, this entire history is our inheritance. With all its flaws and with all the mistakes, this is our heritage and there are things to learn and embrace and uh, uh, there's wisdom that comes through that whole history. Um, Catholicity also has a, has a spatial aspect to it. We're Catholics because we embrace this entire history of the church. We're Catholics because the church is universal in time. It's one church, one body that's living through this entire history. Uh, and we're also Catholics because we believe that the church as it exists in the present moment, wherever it happens to be, is part of the, this one body. Okay? We're divided up in America and most everywhere else in the world into different denominational traditions. Uh, those are a distortion of, uh, I think, of what the New Testament envisions for the church. Understandable distortion in some ways. Uh, the Lord has worked through denominations, uh, of course, uh, and yet... That's not that really that really misleads us into thinking about about how to think about the church. The church throughout the world right now, wherever it exists, is part of the one body that of which we are members. Uh, whether it's uh, part of our denomination or not, uh, it's part of us. And when one member suffers, all suffers, all suffer. Uh, we're all members of that one body, uh, and we we need to learn to live in that way. So to be Catholic is not only to be Catholic in time, embracing the universal history of the church, but also to be Catholic in space and to recognize uh, as brothers and sisters, uh, Christians in whatever church tradition, whatever denominational tradition uh, who are living in the present time. Uh, Catholicity also has, we could say, an intensive dimension to it, or a, uh, maybe there's a Catholicity in the scope of Christian teaching and Christian faith, Catholicity in the scope of the gospel. What I mean by that is that the church, uh, the church, and the, the church preaches a gospel that applies to everything and embraces everything. 
There's nothing outside of the lordship of Jesus Christ, nothing that he doesn't govern and claim as his own. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, one of the heroes of uh, Dutch uh, uh, Christianity in the past uh, century and a half, speaks uh, in a famous quotation, there's not one square inch of, uh, uh, of the world or of the universe that Jesus Christ doesn't claim as his. There's not one square inch of your life. There's no zone that you can say, uh, oh, limit, limit there, Jesus. You know, there's a boundary there. You're, not, you're, you're getting into my personal space, Jesus. You're, you're, not, you're, not, you're transgressing some boundaries now. Uh, Jesus claims it all. Uh, and that means that when we proclaim the gospel as Christians, we're proclaiming a gospel that has a reach into everything. Okay. Uh, so that's part of what it means to be Catholic. It's Catholicity in time, Catholicity in space, uh, and there's a Catholicity in the intensiveness or the uh, scope of the gospel and of the church's ministry. Uh, Catholicity, as, uh, as I've described it, is closely linked to another feature of the church, another note of the church that uh, we have, uh, that we confess in our creeds, and that is the unity of the church. Uh, if we're Catholic, if we recognize Christians throughout the world, whatever church they're in, whatever, uh, whatever nation they're in, whatever people they come from, we, if we recognize these as Christian brothers and sisters, then we're also saying that we are all united together in one body of Christ. We're united together by the one spirit. Uh, Catholicity and uh, unity are, uh, are closely linked in the confessions of, uh, and creeds of the early church. They're closely linked in scripture. Um, this, I want to emphasize that Catholicity is not some secondary feature of the gospel or some expendable uh, accident of the gospel. Uh, if we cl- proclaim, proclaim the gospel as the New Testament proclaims it, then it is a Catholic gospel in the ways that I've described. And if we don't proclaim a Catholic gospel in the way that I've des- described it, we're proclaiming some, some uh, distorted, truncated version of the gospel, some narrowed-down version of what the gospel, uh, what, uh, of the New Testament gospel. Um, part of this is based in the, in the person of Christ, the nature of Christ and Christ's lordship. As I've already said, the, Jesus is Lord of all, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Uh, he's a head over all things for the church. He exalted as king over all things. Uh, and just on that basis, we can say that the church can't be uninterested in any aspect of human life or any corner of the world. Uh, we can't say that there's some part of the world that's outside of Christ's uh, lordship. We can't say that there's any part of our lives or of our uh, lives as nations and peoples that's outside of Christ's lordship. We can also trace this, we can also make the same, same kind of point by looking at the progress of the history of the gospel going back to the call of Abraham. Um, it's, it's always important to note the progress of a particular book of the Bible or of the Bible itself. It's important to note, for example, that Genesis 12, which contains the call of Abraham, comes after Genesis 11, as you would expect. Genesis 11 and 12 are in, you know, they're in order. That's the way, that's that's the numerical arrangement of the book of Genesis. But what happens in Genesis 11? Genesis 11 begins with the account of the Tower of Babel. You have all of humanity, or at least significant portion of humanity, allying together in order to build a tower that reaches to heaven, a tower that will be a connection point between heaven and earth, 
and a city, but they're doing this in rebellion against God. God has told uh, Noah, a new Adam after the flood, to spread out, to take dominion over the earth, to scatter. The men of Babel don't want to scatter, so they gather everybody together and they try to make a tower and a city and uh, unite in rebellion against God. And God comes near, as you know, and disperses them. They, uh, kind, they get a, in some ways, they get the opposite of what they want. They want to gather. God scatters them. In some ways, they get an ironic version of what they were after. They want a great name, a memorable name. They want a name that's going to last forever, and they get one. But it's uh, the name Confusion, not the name that they were going for. Uh, but they do get a name that we're still talking about, you know, how many thousands of years later, we still talk about Babel as a sign of confusion. The, the Lord uh, scatters the nations. He confuses the languages. He confuses, the, uh, there's a, I think there's a distinction in Genesis 11 between lip and tongue. Tongue has to do with language, and lip often in the Bible has to do with confession, not just with speech, but with confessing and worshiping a particular God. We, we, uh, we confess with our lips uh, that uh, God is, uh, Jesus is Lord. Um, so there's a confusion, I think, of, of religions there, too. There's not one universal world religion standing in opposition to God, but a lot of different religions uh, that exist uh, among the many nations of the ancient world. Okay. But the, the Bible doesn't stop there with that situation of the nations scattered and confused. In the next chapter, chapter 12 comes after chapter 11, in the next chapter, God calls Abram, and that context is important because God calls Abraham in order to undo the judgment that he had uh, brought at Babel. Abraham is the beginning of God's work to extend the blessing of God to all the nations. Abraham is the beginning of God's work of making a great name for Abraham. Okay? The men of Babel were trying to get a great name. Abraham's going to be the one who has the greater name. Uh, the men of Babel wanted a tower that reached to heaven, a tower that connected heaven and earth. It's actually going to be Abraham's children that build the tower, the temple, that connects heaven and earth. Uh, that is a piece of heaven on earth. Uh, everything that the men of Babel were after in rebellion against God, God uh, calls Abraham in order to achieve it faithfully. Okay? Abraham is the answer, God's answer to the Tower of Babel. And when Jesus comes, he comes as the seed of Abraham. He comes in order to undo the effects of Babel. He comes to unite the nations under his lordship, unite the nations by his spirit. Uh, those nations are still going to have their own languages, still going to have their own cultural traditions, but they're all going to be one in Jesus Christ. Uh, tribes, tongues, nations, peoples, uh, all of those are going to be gathered together uh, under the one Lord, united by the one spirit, uh, that, and that is central to the gospel. Uh, the central, the most central dimension of that is the fact that Jesus comes in order to break down the great division of humanity, uh, the huge division of humanity between Jew and Gentile. That's the one that is specifically targeted in, uh, in the cross. Ephesians 2, Jesus dies in order to break down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Jesus dies in order to reunite the human race that had been divided from the time of Babel and the time of Abraham. So that, uh, that uh, message of the unification of the human race under the blessing of God is inherent in the gospel. When we proclaim Jesus as the seed of Abraham, fulfilling the promises that were given to Abraham, 
that's, that's part of what we're proclaiming. We can't proclaim the gospel without also proclaiming that in Christ, the nations are being reunited. Uh, that is to say, we can't proclaim the gospel without proclaiming a, a Catholic gospel. Now, what happens, uh, as has happened in the past several centuries, what happens when the church doesn't live up to this calling to be Catholic uh, in the different ways that I've described it, when we're not Catholic in space, when we don't acknowledge one another as brothers uh, in Christ? What happens when we're not Catholic in time, when we lump, lop off different parts of the Christian tradition and ignore uh, parts of the Christian tradition that might be of use to us and, and might be edifying to us? What happens when we're not Catholic uh, in the scope of the gospel we're preaching, uh, when we're saying that the, uh, you know, the gospel applies to some uh, portion of human life but doesn't apply to the whole of human life? This is where my, the title of my, of my talk today comes into play, uh, Catholicity and Culture. I think there are major, uh, massive cultural and political effects of, uh, that, that occur uh, partly because of, I'm not saying that this is the only cause, but partly because of the failures of the church to live up to its Catholicity and to the unity that we confess. Um, I only have a few, a few minutes to uh, assert these things. Uh, I can explain them further uh, to, to, try to, you know, to try to make them more, more persuasive, but I, in the time I have, I can really only assert that this is the case. Uh, essentially, what I think is happening in the modern age is that the divisions of the church, the church's failures of Catholicity, contribute to the secularization of Western uh, European and then American culture. By secular, I mean a system, political system, uh, a social order, an economic system that either uh, dispenses with and expels any kind of religious uh, guidance and religious oversight or at least marginalizes, pushes it out to the, to the side. Uh, so a secular legal system would be one, uh, for example, where religious arguments in law are not acknowledged as weighty arguments. And in fact, where religious arguments might be dismissed as illegitimate sorts of arguments in a legal, uh, in a, in a legal case. Uh, I'm describing really the thrust of uh, some of our recent Supreme Court decisions because that's exactly been the reasoning uh, that's the reasoning of Roe v. Wade, the abortion decision. Uh, it's, a religious, it's a religious establishment argument in part. We can't establish a religion in the United States according to the First Amendment. And if you say, and there are no, there are no, no non-religious arguments against abortion, so we can't pr prohibit abortion without establishing a particular religious perspective on abortion, uh, and therefore, we can't outlaw abortion because it would be an establishment of religion to have a uh, have a religious uh, have a religious basis for our laws concerning abortion. Uh, that's uh, that's what I mean by that's in the in the realm of le legal uh, uh, the realm of law. That's what I mean by a secular. Uh, that's an example of a secular kind of argument, a secular kind of tendency. But you see it in uh, in Europe, and you see it in America in various ways. As many Christians as there are in the United States our institutions are largely secular. Uh, our universities, uh, the major universities, are largely secular. Uh, religious, uh, religious training plays a small, marginal role in much of the teaching of the universities. Um, in our law, it's been deliberately marginalized in our politics. You know, there's a lot of religious rhetoric that takes place in our political life, whether religious aims and religious, uh, religious uh, 
imperatives guide our politics is uh, certainly questionable. I don't, think, I don't think they have much to do with the way our politics actually works. So that, that's the, uh, again, that would require a lot more explanation and qualification to make it uh, fully persuasive. But I'm, I think it's fair to say that we live in a secular or secularizing uh, political and religious climate. Now, the point I want to make is uh, that th uh, the divisions of the church have actually contributed to that. They've contributed to that in a number of different areas. The, 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 failures of the, the failure of the church to be Catholic has contributed to those um, uh, contributed to that secularization process. And again, I don't have time to say any more than, uh, do any more than maybe basically assert these things, but let me assert a few things, and then if you have questions and want to get more detail, I'll try to fill that in. So first in politics, uh, from the very, uh, from early, early modern era, the era post-Reformation, uh, when you have uh, so-called religious wars going on all over Europe, there's a very deliberate effort on the part of political theorists and the part of political, um, and the part of politicians, to uh, limit uh, the scope of religion. Religion in public life was too divisive. If you let religion into public life, then people are going to kill each other, because they differ on transubstantiation, and that's just silly. And so, in order to be at peace, we need to change what religion, change religion's role in. Uh, in our politics. We need to reduce the public role of religion and we need to redefine what religion is and uh, whether this was self-conscious or not, you can trace how this happens in the early modern period. The very, the very meaning of the word religion changes over the course of a couple of centuries so that it becomes a, 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 a name for a set of private opinions uh, that don't have any public weight um, and that's all done in the, in the name of uh, peace and harmony in public life. It's all done because of the divisions and the sometimes violent divisions that took place in the aftermath of the Reformation. Uh, so there's a connection between the failure of uh, the failures of Catholicity. I'm not placing blame on Protestants or on Catholics here. I'm just saying the failure of Catholicity, the failure of the church to be one, is a connection between that and the reduction of religion to a private opinion and that reduction of religion to private opinion assisted and contributed to the secularization of uh, our political life. Uh, you can see it in various ways also in uh, intellectual life. Um, and this, I would say, is more of a failure of Catholicity in time, a failure to reckon with some of the contributions that earlier Christians had made. Um, you have intellectual... Uh, 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 pick, on, pick out uh, modern science as a particular example. Uh, during the high Middle Ages, at least, uh, there was a great deal of scientific investigation taking place. Uh, some of the basic premises of modern science uh, were laid, were founded, and, and have their roots in the medieval period. Um, but the medieval scientists were not a-religious, non-religious, but they saw the world as both an order of causes. You know, one thing causes another. You can and invest, and you can investigate those causes through scientific means of various sorts. It's a, an order of causes, and it's also an order of signs and symbols that manifest and reveal God. And for the medieval mindset, these two things were not in conflict with each other. They were both part of one unified vision of the world. The whole world manifested God. Scripture reveals God. 
and we apply the same kinds of interpretive methods to the world as we do to the, to the scriptures. We seek for um, moral lessons when we look at the habits of animals, for example. If you read a medieval bestiary, a book about animal behavior, they're not just interested in animal, animal behavior as a question of survival, as modern biologists tend to be. They're interested in animal behavior because of some of the lessons it might teach human beings about our obligations to God. They're all, they are interested in the animal behavior. Some of it is kind of fanciful. They actually haven't seen many of these animals, and so they make stuff up, or they, they're based on legend. But they're interested in the actual animal behavior, but it's not just this uh, narrow, narrow order of causes. It's, uh, they want to look at the order of causes, but they also want to look at, at it as, uh, a, um, as, a, as providing moral lessons for Christians. In the modern age, that, of course, that unity of scientific and moral science and meaning gets disrupted. And in the modern age, and I think this is, has to do with a failure of modern Christians, partly a failure of modern Christians to reckon, recognize the achievement of the medieval age. This is a failure of Catholicity in time. Uh, and uh, you have uh, science narrowed down just to a series of causes. And you're, to, to say that you're investigating the behavior of quarks because you might draw some moral lessons about a human about human life just sounds dumb. You know that sounds antiquated and uh, naive and quaint. Uh, but that's the way the medievals would have approached it. And I think that has to do with partly with a failure of the church and failure of Christians in the early sciences to maintain that unified vision of the of the uh, of the of the uh, of the medieval of medieval of the medieval world. Um, in, in the interest of time, let me get right down to my last point, which has to do with vocation. Um, two, things I, two things I want to stress on this. Um, one is, um, if we're Catholic Christians, that means that when we, whatever vocation we go into, whatever life the Lord has given us to lead, uh, whatever, whatever family set, situation we're in, whatever, whatever uh, living situation we're in, our neighborhoods, it all belongs to Jesus, and it all is claimed by Jesus. And being Catholic Christians means we don't let uh, any kind of, the, the gospel isn't barred or excluded from any of those areas of our lives. Uh, and I don't mean here that you uh, only, I don't only mean that you evangelize your neighbors or that you evangelize your coworkers or that you, uh, you, know, you, you, uh, uh, you try, to, try to win converts. That would be a too narrow understanding of what the scope of the gospel is. That would be an uncatholic understanding of the scope of the gospel. Uh, to be a Catholic Christian means that we look for creative ways to turn to mold our lives and shape our lives in a way that expresses Jesus' lordship over our lives, that extends Jesus' lordship over the world, uh, and that is an expression of that universal claim that he makes. Um, the second thing that I want to stress is the relations with um, relations with other Christians of other traditions. Um, the uh, uh, and I think that uh, more than uh, more than you realize, I'm assuming that most of you are not clergy. Most of you are not full time in uh, working at a church. Uh, more than you realize, you're on the front lines of Catholicity in this regard. You know, pastors have much less contact with people of other traditions or with un- unbelievers than you could have, okay? Because they're taking care of you, and you're all Christians. And uh, you are out in the world in various businesses and in neighborhoods, and you have opportunities to interact in ways that your pastor might not. Uh, so you're really on the front lines. Um, and 
there, that, that means that you're going to encounter, I'm not thinking think of evangelism here specifically, but you're going to encounter Christians of other traditions. And uh, if you're operating as a Catholic Christian, you count those Christians of other traditions as brothers, brothers and sisters, which means I mean, a whole host of, exam, of uh, implications of this. One is you don't repeat and believe lies about brothers. There's been a lot of deception about other Christians in the history of the church a lot of lies about what they actually believe and do. Um, it means that you take responsibility for them. If these people are your brothers, you don't say, well, they're Episcopalian, so I don't have to be worried about them. If they're your brothers, then you are your brother's keeper, and you're, to, you're called to be uh, faithful in correcting, encouraging in whatever ways that the Lord opens up.